Well, good morning, everyone. It is so good to see all of you here today. If it's your first time, my name is Pete. I serve as the lead pastor here. And man, we are just excited to have you joining us. As you just heard, we're in the middle of a series called Facebook Official. And we're taking a look at different relationship statuses. And today, as we continue the series, uh, I'm going to try to deal with a very difficult and very sensitive topic of divorce, one that no doubt many of us here today have experienced or have been impacted by the pain of that. In fact, uh, psychologists say that of all stressful experiences that we can experience, um, divorce is the second most stressful thing that a person can endure, second only to the death of a child. That's how much stress and pain divorce causes. And no doubt, there are at least half of us here today who've been impacted by that in some way, shape, or form. Whether you've walked through divorce yourself, or maybe you're preparing to get divorced. Maybe your parents were divorced when you were a child and you had to deal with the, you know, sharing holidays and the confusion of all of that. Or maybe you're a parent and you've watched your adult children get divorced. Chances are really good that in a crowd of this size, at least half of you have been impacted by divorce. In fact, how many of you have ever heard of the often quoted statistic that half of all marriages end in divorce? Anybody heard that before? Almost all of you, we hear it all the time. And I want to let you know that it's total bunk. It is a lie. We should not believe that statistic. Uh, I couldn't believe when I started diving into and researching this to prepare for this message this week that that statistic is, is a total falsehood. It was based on some research that was done in the mid to late 1970s that predicted and tried to project the rate or risk of divorce. And then in 1980, the Census Bureau put out a report that, again, predicted, it wasn't based on stats, it predicted that Of all the couples getting married between 1976 and 77, 50% of them would wind up in divorce. It was a projection. It wasn't based on reality, and the numbers never proved to ever come close to that. In fact, divorce has been on the decline for almost 30, 40 years now. In fact, Shanti Feldman, who's a social researcher... Uh, She wrote a book a couple years ago. She writes a lot about relationships. She wrote a book called um, The Good News About Marriage. And in it, check this out, she discovered, she went on like an eight-year journey to try to figure out what exactly is the average divorce rate for first marriages. Because we hear this all the time, that 50% of marriages end in divorce. And she tried to figure out like what it actually is. And she discovered that the U.S. Census Bureau found out that of Of all people who've ever been married, 72% are still married to their first spouse. 72% of people who've been married are still married to their first spouse. That is good news. And get this, of the 28% who aren't, that includes those who've been married so long that one spouse actually died. So she says that the the number that's closer to reality, even though no one knows what the exact rate of divorce is for first marriages, she suggests that it's somewhere between only 20 and 25% of people who get married wind up divorced. And another myth that needs to be debunked is this one that we hear all the time, that the rate of divorce is the same in the church as it is in the world. How many of you have heard that? That's total falsehood too. In fact, the Barna Group did a study uh, a couple years ago that suggests, get this, that for people who attend church regularly together, your rate of divorce goes down by anywhere from 25 to 50%. 
So people are not getting divorced at the same rate if you attend church regularly as those who don't. That is huge news. So if you wanna work and save your marriage, go to church together. It's really gonna help because it lowers, depending on the study you look at, anywhere from 25 to 50%. I loved that. But as it stands, you know, any rate of divorce is still too high. This is a difficult topic to talk about, and we need to understand what God has to say about marriage and divorce, because he never intended for divorce to be a part of our story. But before we look at what divorce, or before what God says about divorce, I want you to know that I, um, I studied and stressed over this message perhaps more than any message I've ever preached I struggle with trying to figure out how I was going to communicate what needed to be said today because when you look at scripture, Jesus said some really shocking things about divorce. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we can't, like I've said in the past couple of weeks, we can't pick and choose which statements of his we want to believe and follow and which ones we want to just ignore and skirt and, and just dismiss. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and truth is sometimes hard to hear. And, and in my preparation for this message today, listen, I had to revisit a battlefield from my past that represents the most painful time of my life and face what for me is the biggest failure of my life. So for those of you who don't know or who are new, I am divorced and remarried. My wife is with me here today and I shared with her this week all that I'm going to share with you today. And we had to kind of together uh, work through some of the things that we processed back then in the aftermath of my divorce and the decision to get married and whether it was biblical and all of that. And we're here together today, not ashamed of the story that God has written in our lives. It's a story of grace. It's a story of redemption. And we want to let all of you know that what God has done for me, he can do for you. But we've got to understand what God's word has to say about marriage and divorce. I wrestled through this week some shame and condemnation that started to resurface in my heart as I looked at what I've walked through and I had to be reminded of the fact that what, what Kelly said to me when we got married, what God told her was that do not call unclean what I have made clean. But I want to look today, take an honest look at what God's word has to say about this. Because listen, truth is not always easy to hear. Truth is often very challenging, very confrontational, very inconvenient at times. And in the same way that I wrestled with some shame and condemnation, there's a chance that some of you here today might have to wrestle through some similar feelings that start to creep up in you as you hear what I have to say. Because as difficult as it's going to be for me, I am not going to um, skirt over what God's word has to say. I'm not going to sugarcoat what Jesus said about marriage and divorce just to make you like me better or just to make you feel better about your situation. I'm not going to do it. My heart in all of what I'm going to share with you today is to be faithful to God's word and loving to God's people at the same time. I want to be full of grace and truth today. And so I'm just warning you as I talk about this that it's going to get really awkward and uncomfortable in here today. This is a heavy message. Some of you might begin to squirm in your seat a little bit when you hear what I have to say. Some of you may not agree with everything I have to say. 
It's going to get awkward. It's going to get uncomfortable. And I'm just going to ask you one favor before you get mad at me and, and get up in the middle of the message and storm out of here and say, I'm never coming back to this church again. Would you please do me the favor of staying till the end? Just stay to the end and let me finish what I have to say because not only is God full of truth, he's also full of grace and he's a God of second chances and he has a plan for people who've walked through the divorce. So just stick with me to the end. Because we've got to know how God views marriage and divorce. Marriage isn't something that our culture has created and as much as our government wants to legislate it and pass laws about it, the truth of the matter is our government hasn't created the institution of marriage. It was created by God in the beginning and we've got to look at what God's word says about it. And some of you may learn some new things today as I share with you what it has to say about marriage and divorce that might shed some light on some things and might open your eyes to some things that you've done or experienced in the past that maybe weren't right. It might make you a little bit uncomfortable. Just know that I don't say any of these things to condemn anyone, but to lead you to an understanding of what God's word says. To just understand that as you hear me speak, you're not listening to someone who hasn't walked through it because I have and who hasn't experienced firsthand the pain of divorce because I have. So just keep that in mind as you hear me share what God's word has to say. Because one of the verses, if you've spent any time in church growing up, one of the verses that no doubt you've heard a thousand times is that God hates divorce, right? That's found in Malachi chapter two, verse 16. For I hate divorce, says the Lord. And we shout that so often, we condemn divorce so aggressively that we unknowingly wind up making people who've experienced divorce feel or think that maybe God hates them. Well, if God hates divorce, then if I'm divorced, does that mean God hates me? I want you to hear me clearly this morning. Just because God hates divorce does not mean he hates divorcees. In fact, the reason I believe he says he hates divorce is because he loves people so much and he hates to see the pain and the devastation that is caused by divorce. In fact, if you read the last half of this verse, it goes on to say that to divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord. He hates divorce because he sees the cruelty and the pain that is inflicted when people go through and experience divorce. That's why he hates it, because he loves people. Another reason I believe God hates divorce is because it mars the image of what marriage was meant to reflect to the world. You remember last week when my wife and I shared with you about marriage and the lie that we've been led to believe that marriage is about our happiness. Instead, rather, it's really supposed to be a representation of God's love for people, his unending love and unending commitment to people. And when we divorce, it distorts the image of what was meant to be represented to the world of a God who never leaves and never forsakes us. See, marriage is a covenant relationship intended to be a picture of God's grace, of God's unending love and commitment that lasts forever. But we don't understand covenant today. We see marriage as a contract and contracts can be broken. But a covenant is supposed to be an unbreakable commitment. And divorce, like I said, distorts that image of what marriage is meant to present to the world. See, we see marriage as a contract of convenience, though, and we want to know what the loopholes are. 
You know, what are biblical grounds for divorce? Well, how can I, when and how can I divorce my husband or my wife and still be okay with God? We want to know what the loopholes are because it's a contract of convenience. And honestly, not much has changed in the last 2,000 years because there were some people who approached Jesus with the same question, like, is it okay to divorce? And I want to show you that exchange in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, when some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. And they wanted to test him because they were threatened by him. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of their day, and they were threatened by him. They were, he was like upsetting their system and, you know, People were following him instead of them. And so they're trying to trap him. And they approach him with this question. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, before we go any further, I want to pause here and point out that in Jewish culture, at this time, divorce was actually very prevalent. It was completely acceptable and normal for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. If she displeases me, if she burns my toast, if I just don't feel like doing this anymore, for any and every reason, it was completely acceptable. Now, women could not divorce men in this culture. They didn't have any rights at all. That's why it says for men to divorce their wives. It was completely normal and acceptable. And here's why I point that out, because that culture is not that much different than our culture today, is it? People today get divorced for any and every reason, right? We're just not in love anymore. I'm, I'm not happy in the relationship anymore. And I deserve to be happy. Life is too short to not be happy. He doesn't treat me or love me the way he used to. She's too controlling or manipulative or my personal favorite. Irreconcilable differences, right? We tried to make it work and we just can't. There's too many things that we just don't see eye to eye on. It's irreconcilable differences. So we're just going to get divorced. Apparently, irreconcilable differences has been being cited for thousands of years as people looked for a loophole to get out of the relationship that was meant to last forever. And so look at how Jesus responds to the Pharisees' question of, is it okay to divorce for any reason? In verse 4, he says, haven't you read, which I find funny because he's talking to the most educated people of their day. The Pharisees were very learned men. They knew what the scriptures taught. Many of them had memorized the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. And here Jesus is telling them like, haven't you guys read your Bible? Like, duh. <laughs> haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, and then this line we hear every wedding almost, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What's interesting to me as I look at this is the, the Pharisees ask Jesus about divorce and he talks to them about marriage. I would suggest to you that one of the reasons we have such a problem with divorce in our culture today is we don't have a proper understanding of what marriage is. So before we can deal with divorce, we've got to look at what God intended marriage to be because we've made it just something that's like the next step in the evolution of a person's relationship. We've been together for three years, and if I wanted her to stay, I probably should put a ring on it, right? You know, or we've, we succumb to the societal pressures of, you know, well, we got to get married. That's just what you do, or your parents are pressuring you like, you know, come on, I need grandkids or whatever it is. Like, it's just the next step. 
and we've made the process so easy. We just go to the courthouse, town hall, we get a license, and you know, in this state at least, they force you to wait at least 24 hours, but if you wanted to, you could go to a justice of the peace, make it official the next day. And I think that we've just, the reason we have so much divorce is that we've minimized or we've lost what marriage was intended to be. We spend years preparing for the big day and we spend tens of thousands of dollars on the actual wedding without giving much thought or plan or preparation for what it means to be and to stay married. It's easy to get married. It's a lot harder to stay married. So they want to talk about divorce and Jesus is trying to talk to them about marriage because they, like us, viewed marriage like a contract that's easy to get out of. But what Jesus is trying to show them by talking about marriage is it's not a contract. It's a covenant, a divine binding agreement between you, your spouse, and God. See, now in this culture, it's important to understand that when a couple would get engaged, there would be a contract that was signed. When the parents of a young boy would see a girl that they wanted their son to marry. The parents of that boy would go to the parents of the girl and say, how much for your daughter? Because arranged marriages were popular in this culture and dowries were a part of the custom. And so the parents of the groom would, pay, uh, would give gifts or you know, pay a sum of money to the parents of the girl to say, hey, let's make a, an agreement. And because there was an exchange of goods or an exchange of money, they entered a legally binding contract in the engagement. The engagement was almost considered the same as marriage. And in order to break that engagement, one had to issue a certificate of divorce, which is why when we read the, the Christmas story and Joseph finds out that, you know, they're betrothed, they're engaged, and he finds out that she's pregnant and he goes, it's not mine. He doesn't yet know it's from the Holy Spirit. And so what does it say? It says that he set out to divorce her quietly because that contract required a certificate of divorce to end that contract. But once the wedding ceremony happened, and the marriage was consummated, that's when the contract would become a covenant. A covenant that was meant to last forever. And when a man or woman come together in marriage, Jesus is saying that you're not just sharing a last name, you're not just sharing a residence, you're not just sharing a bank account. You are now one flesh, united. It was the act of sex that initiated, it, initiated the covenant when a man and woman would come together. So you need to understand this. Sex is so much more than just physical. Sex is something that happens in the spiritual as well, that when you come together and are united as husband and wife, that you are one flesh, you are a new thing, that from that point forward, united, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually as well. And interestingly enough, when you look at covenants in the Old Testament, and I'm not going to go to sex ed class here, but you need to understand that when it comes to covenants, anytime God initiated a new covenant with his people, whether it was the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, all covenants were initiated by the shedding of blood. They would sacrifice an animal and that would seal the covenant. And in God's perfect world, in an ideal situation, you'd have two virgins coming together. And on the night of their wedding, when the marriage was consummated, the hymen would be broken and blood would be shed, sealing and initiating this covenant relationship. We've got to understand the seriousness of this. When two become one flesh, it's not just a physical act. It's a spiritual act that forever unites you into one. 
We try to illustrate this in our wedding ceremonies when we do the unity candle. Right When the, the ceremony begins by the mothers of the soon-to-be bride and groom light the outer candles, representing the lives that they've given birth to and the individuality of those two lives. And then at some point after they exchange vows, the new husband and wife take those outer candles and they light the center unity candle, representing that they are now one. And they blow out and extinguish the outer candles. And as much as that's a great tradition, I don't think it's a very good representation of what Jesus was trying to illustrate when two become one in marriage. Because here's the thing, you can always relight that outer candle. And we're not supposed to be able to relight that outer candle because two have become one. And so a couple years ago, I saw an illustration that I want to share with you today that I think better illustrates what Jesus meant when he talked about two becoming one in the context of marriage. And so let's say, for the sake of argument today, that each of you are an egg. Okay, we all were eggs at one point, a fertilized egg. But we've got Jack egg right here. Okay. And then we've got Jill egg right here. I should go on top chef. Pretty good at that. Okay. You got Jack and Jill going along in life, and Jack spots Jill and says, oh, I like your yolk. <laughs> and Jill's like, yours isn't bad either. And so they start hanging out, they start dating, they kiss, and they fall in love, and eventually they say, well, let's get married. And so they get married, and at some point in the wedding ceremony, the pastor says to Jack, says, Jack, do you take Jill to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others until death do you part? And Jack says, I do. And Jack is in the bowl. And then he turns to Jill, and the pastor says the same thing. Do you, Jill, take Jack to be your husband, you know, to have and to hold, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others until death do you part? And Jill says, I do. And they are now married. We are sharing a bowl together. <laughs> then the awkward point in the wedding reception comes where Jack and Jill get ready to leave, and everyone knows they're, what they're getting ready to do the part that they were looking forward to the most. And as they get ready to mix it up physically, they don't know that God is present as well. This whisk represents God. And as they start to mix it up physically, God is doing this spiritually. The two are becoming one. There we go. We are now scrambled eggs. We're one flesh. And so in five years, 10 years, Jack decides, you know what? She doesn't make me happy anymore. I want to take my yoke and go find someone else that's going to make me happy. Well, how, how do you, you can't, you can't undo what can't be undone. They want to know what's permissible. Is it permissible, Jesus? What's lawful? Can we divorce our wives for any and every reason? You want to know what's permissible? And Jesus is saying, it's not possible. In other words, you can't unone what God has made one. You can't undo what can't be undone. You're, you can't unscramble scrambled eggs. They are forever joined. And so when you think, you know, that you're just going to divorce and go on and, you know, go on to the next relationship, you need to understand that you're forever going to take a piece of that person with you. Forever. And that person is forever going to take a piece of you with them. 
And as much as you think it's in your past and you've dealt with it and you don't have to deal with it anymore, I got news for you. Trust me, I know from personal experiences, it follows you everywhere. In every relationship, the vast majority of our arguments in the first year of our marriage had to do with my first wife, with my first marriage. You can't unwind what God has made one. So when the Pharisees asked Jesus about what's lawful, can we divorce our wives? He responds by trying to, mar- um, to remind them of what marriage was intended to be, a covenant that lasts forever, which is why we say until death do us part. And so which is why at this point, I wanna just quickly address singles to remind you that the decision to get married is one that needs to not be taken lightly. It's not just the next step in the progression of your relationship. It's not just what you do when it feels right at the moment. Because if, see, that's why as a church, we've taken the position that when somebody comes to us and says, we want you to marry us, we want to get married, we require that they go through some premarital counseling. Because if they don't understand the implications of their decision and what it means to be scrambled eggs, then they're not ready to get married. The decision to marry needs to be one of the most important decisions of your life. You need to recognize that it's forever. There's no loopholes. So the Pharisees respond to Jesus' comments about marriage with another question then. In verse 7, they said, why then did Moses command, now notice that word, why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're basically saying like, okay, if that's the case, then, then why did Moses allow us to, to divorce our wives for any and every reason? And I've got to understand here that the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. They don't really care what he has to say about marriage and divorce. They're just trying to discredit and disprove that he is the son of God. Because he's upsetting their religious system. And so they know that Moses was a prophet of God. He's the one that gave them the law, the Ten Commandments. And if they can trap Jesus into saying something different than what Moses said, then they can prove to everyone that Jesus isn't the son of God. So they're trying to trap him. And notice how Jesus responds in verse eight. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not supposed to be this way from the beginning. See, Moses didn't command you to get a divorce. He permitted men to do this, not for men's sake, but for the women's sake. Because in their culture, when a guy was done with his wife and wanted to get onto a new model, he could just, you know, kick her out and she would be left to her own to try to figure out how to provide for herself. She couldn't go back home because it wasn't allowed. Another man wouldn't take her in and so she had to try to provide for herself. And that's not how God wanted his daughters to be treated. And so Jesus was saying, Moses didn't command you. It was a concession he made because your hearts were hard. You were sinful and you weren't loving and caring for your wives the way you're supposed to. It was a concession because of our sinful condition, not a commandment. It was never supposed to be this way, Jesus said. And he continues in verse nine. And here's the money verse. This is where it's gonna start to get a little bit hard. I tell you, he said, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Wow. That's a verse that we usually like to just skip over 
when we're reading our Bibles. And again, because women couldn't divorce men in this culture, they didn't have any rights. This was written to men. But I believe if this were to have been spoken to our cultural context, Jesus would have said for any person who divorces his or her spouse for a reason except for sexual immorality commits adultery. And the word that Jesus uses for sexual immorality in the original language was the Greek word porneia, which is so much more than just adultery. Porneia was this broad overarching term that referenced a passage in the old covenant in the law that listed a whole host of sexual sins that was constituted sexual immorality, which included sex before marriage and a whole host of other things. And Jesus is saying, unless it's for that reason, if you divorce and remarry another, it's adultery. And I know this is hard to hear because maybe you're sitting here thinking right now, well, that, that's not why I got divorced. Or maybe you're thinking about getting a divorce, but it's not because there's been adultery. We all want to know, like, is, is divorce a sin? Because I grew up in church, but the church I grew up in treated people who were divorced like they had a scarlet letter on their chest. They shunned them. They were, they were, they were made to feel less than, like damaged goods, like there was no place for them in the church. And listen, I am not okay exiling a third of the church to the castle of shame because they've made a failure in life. We've all failed. Which one of us hasn't failed in life? It's our job as the body of Christ to redeem and restore people to God's plan and purpose for their lives. We've treated divorce like it's the unforgivable sin. I know from firsthand experience, I grew up in a denomination where you could have murdered someone, gave your life to Christ, and gotten ordained into ministry, but if you were divorced, you could not get ordained. And so I felt this. I thought after I got divorced that I'll never get into ministry. I'm not allowed to. We've treated divorce like it's the unforgivable sin. Listen to me. It is not the unforgivable sin. Not every situation of divorce is a sin. However, I do believe that every divorce is a result of sin. It's sin in our hard hearts that leads us to ending a covenant relationship that was meant to last forever. Not every divorce is sin, but every divorce is a result of sin. And the Bible only gives a couple of legitimate reasons why a follower of Jesus Christ can seek divorce. And the first one is that he just gave. It's adultery. Adultery. Which makes sense because if sex is what initiates the covenant, then sex outside the marriage is what would break the covenant. But I want to say this. Even when there is adultery present and you have biblical grounds for divorce, I don't believe that person necessarily has to seek a divorce. Because I believe that through forgiveness, through counseling, through reconciliation, God can do a work and restore that marriage. I've seen it happen before. You know, in the same way that God overcomes our unfaithfulness to him, we commit spiritual adultery all the time. He's supposed to be our first love, but we place things and people and money and idols in front of him. And when we remain faithless, when we walk away from him, he remains faithful to us. 
and his spirit lives in us if you're a follower of Jesus and, and with his help. I'm not trying to minimize the pain of that betrayal. But with God's help, if, if the cheating spouse is repentant and willing to, to come together, I believe that God, I would love to see God save your marriage, even if there's been infidelity. I've seen it before. I know it can happen where God heals hearts and restores marriages. But what if adultery isn't the case? Are there no other biblical grounds? What if you're married and your spouse wants to leave? And no matter what you do to work on the marriage, they just say, you know what, I'm done. I'm, I'm out. I'm leaving. The same thing was happening in Corinth, a church that Paul planted. And we've been reading for the last couple of weeks from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul addresses several things in the church concerning singleness, marriage, and divorce. And this was happening there. And I want to read to you a verse that he wrote in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, and notice he says unbeliever. And some of you might say, well, what if my spouse is a believer and wants to leave? Well, Paul is assuming that if they're a believer, they're not going to leave. Because unless it's for infidelity, unless it's for sexual immorality, the Christian would know there is no reason to leave. And so he just assumes that if someone wants to leave, they're an unbeliever. And so if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so, Paul says. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. For God has called us to live in peace. The second biblical justification for divorce would be abandonment. The first was adultery. Second is abandonment. Because if one person wants to leave, the remaining spouse is no longer bound, which the definition of that term, that phrase that Paul used was free of the legal obligation. If marriage is a covenant relationship that requires two people to stay engaged in the relationship, if one person leaves, there's no longer a covenant there, which was the case in my story. When my first wife decided, I'm out, I'm gone, I'm done, she abandoned the covenant relationship. But listen, in the same way that I told you in the first point with adultery, that just because you have grounds doesn't mean that you necessarily have to seek a divorce. I would encourage you, if that's your situation, to not rush into divorce, to not use that as a reason to right away just file for divorce. Because as much as I tried, you know, for the first couple of months after my first wife left to, to pray and believe that God was going to restore my marriage, after a couple of months, it just got to be too hard and too painful for me to hold the door of hope open in my heart. And so I shut it by filing for divorce. And the part of my story that I don't often share, I don't know that I've ever shared it here because it's embarrassing and I'm ashamed of it. But I've told you in the past that I just got angry at God. I was angry at my, ex, my soon-to-be ex-wife. I just walked away from my faith. And in that sinful, hard-hearted state, there was a woman who started working at the office that I worked at who caught my eye, and I caught her eye. And before you know it, I was involved in an adulterous relationship. And some would say, you know what, the divorce was just a, you know, a formality at that point. It's just waiting for the paperwork to be filed. So it wasn't really adultery. No, in God's eyes it was. We were in a covenant relationship that I had not yet been legally released from. And so I'm ashamed of that part of my story. 
until I was reminded earlier this week when my wife was ministering to me after I told her I was preparing for this. And she says, don't call unclean what God has made clean. I've been forgiven. But listen, I had to realize as I prepared this message, I had to own my part in it and realize that I hadn't loved my wife like Christ loved the church. And I had to own that. And if you're here today and you've been divorced, you've got to own your part in it because it takes two to make a marriage work and it takes two to make a marriage fail as well. I think we should do whatever we can to fight for our marriages, but at the end of the day, if a spouse leaves, there's nothing you can do to control that. You're only responsible for your part in it. Which leads to the third reason I believe that we would have grounds for divorce. The first two, the Bible addresses directly. The third one isn't addressed directly, but I believe in principle is supported by God's word, and that's in cases of abuse. What I know of what God says and his value of human life. I don't believe there's any reason why a person would be required to stay in a situation where they are being abused physically, mentally, or emotionally. Jesus said, I came that you, uh, it is for freedom that you have been set free. Why would we remain in a prison when he came to set us free? That verse I just read said, God has called us to live in peace. He hasn't called you to be a punching bag. And so as a church, we support, if you're in a situation where abuse is taking place, we support every possible intervention to to bring that abuse to an immediate halt, which would include separation, church discipline, police action, a court order, and any other intervention from church family or friends to separate you from that situation. And when all means of biblical intervention have been used and exhausted, if the offending spouse, if the abuser refuses to repent and get help, then that person is acting like and should be treated as an unbeliever who is forcing the issue. They have broken faith. They have broken the vows of their covenant. And I believe that person would be justified in filing for divorce. And truthfully, other than those reasons, the Bible gives no other grounds for why a Christ follower should seek divorce. And the reason is because God knows that once you're scrambled eggs, you can't unscramble them. And many of you have gone through the hurt and pain of a divorce like me, or a family or friends who have gotten a divorce. It was never God's plan for you. He didn't want you to experience that. But it's a reality in our world, in our sinful world. Some of you would say, you know, pastor, you just don't understand my situation. You don't know what he's like. You don't know what she's like. You don't know what I've been through. It's just too hard. You're right. I don't know your situation. I'm just trying to tell you what God's word says. See, we don't establish truth through our experiences. We submit our experiences to the truth of God's word. In other words, we don't interpret scripture through the lens of our personal bias or experiences. We interpret our experiences through the lens of the truth of God's word. And truth isn't always easy to hear. 
Because the idea that we could get divorced for any and every reason just because we're not happy, it's just, it's not supported by the Bible. If you think someone else will make you happy or if the person you're with just, you know, isn't living up to your expectations, you don't feel like they're living up to their end of the bargain, I'm sorry, it might be inconvenient, but unless those things are present, then there are no biblical justification for divorce. And I know this sounds harsh in a world today where we can get divorced for any and every reason, when it's convenient, when we just don't feel like it, it's, it sounds harsh, and it is. Even Jesus' disciples thought it was harsh because after listening to what Jesus said, this is what his disciples said in verse 10, said, Jesus, wow, if this is really the situation between a husband and a wife, it'd be better not to marry. They're like, wow, that, that is hard. And maybe you're sitting here thinking the same thing, saying, wow, if I've got to stay married to one person forever and there's no loopholes, there's no out for me, maybe I... I don't know, that's really hard. And Jesus' response to that is like, you know what, you're right. This is a hard word that not many people can accept. Drops the mic, walks away. That was in essence his response. He says only those to whom it's been given can receive it. Which means that unless you're a follower of Jesus in whom his spirit dwells, like this sounds completely foreign to you and you're maybe sitting here if you're not a follower of Jesus and say, this is whack. And you know what, you have that right, that's fine. Like I said, I'm just trying to point to what Jesus has told us marriage was intended to be. So maybe you're sitting here thinking, you know, because we, we want Jesus to give us an out. We want to feel better about that guilt that we've been carrying, knowing that we divorced our spouse for a reason that wasn't really biblical. We want Jesus to say, I know how hard it is. Let me make it easier for you. But he doesn't because he can't, because you can't unone what God has made one. And so maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, what, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? Because I know there's a lot of different situations represented here today. Maybe you're divorced and, and you're thinking about getting back into the dating scene and moving on with your life. And if that's you, I would just encourage you to go home and read 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in its entirety. Because Paul would suggest that if you're divorced and if it's for a reason that wasn't one of those that I listed here, that you should remain single for the rest of your life or be reconciled to your spouse. And I know that sounds extreme, but that's what it says. Maybe you're married and thinking about pursuing a divorce. Maybe you've got some new things to think about now that you've heard what Jesus has to say about it. Maybe you're divorced and already remarried to a godly spouse and have an awesome marriage that God seems to be blessing, which is the situation I find myself in. There's a whole host of different scenarios and situations that I can't possibly address each and every single one of them. Because what if you're here and you're recognizing that you're the reason your first marriage ended? You walked out, you committed adultery, or maybe you divorced because you just didn't like her anymore. You didn't care for him anymore. You found someone else that you thought could make you happier. And now you're remarried and you're realizing that, wow, my... Jesus said that if I remarry except for that, I'm committing adultery. Am I, am I in adultery by being in a second marriage now? I want to give you a verse that Paul wrote to the Corinthians that addresses some of these situations. Because we asked ourselves these questions and like, do I divorce my current wife and try to go back to my last wife or my last husband and try to reconcile to them? But what if they're remarried and have kids? Like, am I, what do I do? Am I supposed to remain single the rest of my life? Do I get divorced? Do I stay married? 
Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 20. See, because biblical scholars are all over the place when it comes to the issue of remarriage. And I just, I want to give you this verse. Paul said each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. When we are exposed to what God's word says, at that point, we're accountable for the information we've been given. And wherever you're at in your situation, whatever your situation is, remain in the situation that you're in right now when God called you. So if you're in a second marriage, don't divorce your wife and, and try to reconcile to your, to your last wife or your last husband. Honor the vows you've made in your current marriage and be faithful to it. Remain in the situation that you're in when God called you. I know this is hard, and if you're sitting here wrestling with the implications of divorce and remarriage, I just want to give you three things today as we get ready to close that I think we need to do with this information. And it's simply to accept it, to confess it, and receive it. And what I mean by that is when we accept it, we've, our knee-jerk reaction when we hear extreme things like this, truth that's really hard to, to process, is to push back against and say, I don't agree with that. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We've got to accept that what Jesus said is true. And then we've got to confess it. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe you need to confess to your previous spouse because James would write that when we confess our sins one to another and pray for each other that we may be healed. We confess our sins to God for forgiveness, but we confess our sins to one another for healing. And if you want to be healed of the pain of divorce, there might be some confession that has to take place between you and your last spouse, maybe between you and your current spouse, as you recognize that the grounds under which your previous marriage ended weren't biblical. Maybe you even confess. I know some people that have confessed to their kids in their second marriage to help them understand what marriage is intended to be. I had to do that when I realized this. In my first marriage, after the divorce was finalized, I confessed and apologized to my first wife for not having loved her like I was supposed to. I confessed to Kelly and we received God's grace and his forgiveness and we moved on. And God is writing a beautiful love story of redemption that gives hope to people who've been through similar things. Accept it, confess it, and then the last thing we do is receive it. Receive what? Receive grace. We receive grace. See, to me, God either redeems everything or he redeems nothing. If remarriage after an unbiblical divorce is adultery, I can't help but think about David and Bathsheba who in the Old Testament, David was a king in Israel who was supposed to be out to war. He was already married, but he was at home for whatever reason, out on his rooftop checking things out. Next door, he sees this woman bathing on her rooftop and she's beautiful and he lusts after her and he brings her to himself and he makes love to her. She winds up pregnant. He tries to cover it up and has her husband killed. He winds up taking Bathsheba as his wife that child would wind up dying, but they would have another child who would be named Solomon, who was one of the greatest kings in all of Israel's history, considered by many to be one of the wisest men who ever lived. And it would be through Solomon's lineage that the savior of the world would be born. 
the redemption of mankind came out of an adulterous affair and relationship. Don't tell me God can't redeem what started out in sin and when it's confessed and when it's forgiven, God brings something good out of it. Don't tell me. Because Jesus would come through David and Bathsheba's line, through Solomon into the world. Jesus, full of truth, who said some really hard things to hear about divorce, but he was also full of grace. And I think about the time when a woman who was caught in the act of adultery was brought before Jesus. And the men who brought her wanted to know if Jesus would support what the law said should be done in her situation. The law said she should be stoned. She was caught in the act. And Jesus didn't say that what she did wasn't wrong. He didn't tell them that they shouldn't throw stones. What did he do? He said, all right, guys, whoever's without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And because we've all sinned one by one, they walked away until it was just the woman and Jesus standing there. And I can imagine the woman wrapped in a sheet because she was caught in the act, unable to even lift her head because she's shamed at what she was just caught in, expecting condemnation, expecting judgment, maybe expecting stones to be thrown at her. And Jesus asks her, where did your accusers go? without looking up she says they're all gone and in my mind the way I picture the story going I, I see Jesus lifting the head of this woman with all of the love and compassion in his heart and says to her neither do I condemn you go and sin no more he didn't say that what she did wasn't wrong he just said I don't condemn you for it just don't do it anymore and if Jesus doesn't condemn the woman caught in adultery then as the church we don't condemn you either if you've been divorced if you've committed adultery if you've done things that aren't a part of God's plan for your life we don't condemn you there's grace the same Jesus that said these things about marriage said to the woman I don't condemn you and the truth is, if you're here today, divorced, adulterer, whatever, you're in good company. Because according to Jesus' words, we're all adulterers. Because I told you last week that Jesus said that if we even look at someone with lust in our hearts, we've committed adultery. I don't know of a person who hasn't looked at someone with lust in their heart. We're all adulterers. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We're all in need of his grace and his forgiveness. We need to receive it. And so today we want to close a little bit different. Kelly's going to sing a song that I want you to let the words of this song to wash over you. Because here's the deal. When you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old things have passed away and all things have been made new. You are cleansed. You are washed. You are purified. You are sanctified. You are justified. And here's the deal. Listen. The definition for justified that I learned when I was a kid, I'm going to share with you today that helps me remember this. When God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. What he sees... It's just as if I'd never sinned. That's what justified means. When you're justified by faith, when God looks at you, you've received his sacrifice, you've received his forgiveness. It's just as if you'd never sinned. You are clean, you are whole. There is no shame, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want you to receive his grace today. So as Kelly shares this song with us, I want you to just sit there and let the words sink into your spirit and receive 
his grace. Your blood flowed around and made 
thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace, God. I pray right now that you would seal by your Holy Spirit the work that you are doing in people's hearts as they receive your grace, as they receive your forgiveness, that it would wash the shame of their past off of them, that they would stand before you knowing what their true identity is as a loved son or daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus, that we would reflect your love to the world around us, God. There is no condemnation. And for those who are here today in a a struggling marriage, they're trying to hold on. God, I pray that you would give them the strength and the courage to keep fighting. Lord, to see you do a miracle, that you would see marriages restored where there's been adultery or infidelity. God, I pray that you give them the power to forgive. Lord, that they would be reconciled to be a testimony to the world around us, that your love, that your grace can overcome even the worst offense. And Lord, for those who've experienced the shame of a past mistake, whether it be divorce or adultery or Lord, anything, I pray today, God, that you would allow us to experience the knowledge of being made new, washed and cleansed. Lord, I just, I seal what you've done here today. Lord, would you continue to lead your people into all truth, knowing that it's your grace that empowers them to live according to the principles that you've called us to live by, that we would be a demonstration to the world around us of the most incredible and amazing love, the scandalous grace that gives favor to people who don't deserve it, but Lord, who've acknowledged that There's nothing too dirty that you can't make worthy. And you made us worthy when you hung on that cross and paid for our sin so that we could be forgiven. God, we thank you for healing marriages. We thank you for forgiving our sin. Lord, I thank you for the testimonies that are gonna come out of today of marriages that were headed towards the divorce that are gonna be healed because of your grace. Lord, we love you so much. We're so thankful for your work in our lives. God, help us to be the people you've called us to be. May we live lives that are so, like, just attractive that the world around us would look in and say, I want what you've got. And may we invite them into a journey of following you and discovering the abundant life that you came to bring us. Help us to represent you well to our families, our communities, our classmates, our coworkers that we would be ambassadors of this gospel of grace that makes all things new. Jesus, we love you so much. And all God's people here said, amen and amen.